0: Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Esports Podcast Network. I'm Ahmad Khan of Tom's Guide. Last Monday, the Esports Integrity Commission, or ESIC, put out an update regarding a long-anticipated report about Counter-Strike's match-fixing specifically within the Mountain Dew League, which has since been renamed to ESEA Premier. The report is not yet released, but hints that there are 34 investigations taking place. The ESIC works with law enforcement agencies, anti-corruption advocates, publishers, and stakeholders to investigate instances of fraud within esports, and sends recommendations to tournament organizers on what punishments should be given. While criticism has been lobbed against the ESIC for taking too long to conduct investigations, an update on the website stated, quote, The investigation must be completed with the time and attention required, no matter how long, to provide the appropriate punishment and create a meaningful deterrent. Joining me today is Mikhail Kalimantov. Editor for Launcher, the Gaming and Esports Vertical at the Washington Post. Mikhail, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here chatting about this subject.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I definitely read your story and uh, it was very, very detailed. So going into my first question, uh, based on your your reporting, why has the CSGO investigation taken the ESIC so long? Is there simply just a crush of too many cases or is it a resources issue? So I think there are
1: multiple issues. Uh, Of course, there are multiple issues. One of the problems is that the ESIC, and this this is a total aside, but I have heard ESIC, the ESIC, ESIC, and the ESIC as ways of saying their name, the acronym. And I have never actually nailed down what the correct one is (laughs) <laughs> and they have never told me. Um, I've tried to like pick it up casually in conversation, and they never use the, or they haven't used the abbreviation as, uh, at least to my knowledge.
0: Oh, interesting, interesting. So I've been pronouncing it wrong this uh, entire time?
1: No, 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 no. I think <laughs> you are using, you're within permissible bounds. You are <laughs> using something that I've definitely heard from sources who are w- uh, very familiar with E6 work. I say E6 just by default. But mm-hmm. I've heard everything at this point. And every time I hear a new one, I'm I'm like a tiny bit thrown. I'm like, am, am I saying it wrong? <laughs> Do people get what I'm saying when I say Isik? I'll just be saying Isik because that's what I default to. Sure. Um But there are multiple issues, and one of them is that Isic is fairly understaffed and underfunded. The week before ESIC's latest update to its match fixing report. I sent over a list of pretty pointed questions to Isik. And one of those questions was, you know, critics have characterized Isik as underfunded. Do you dispute this characterization? How do you feel about that characterization? What is the correct characterization? And their response to me essentially was, no, that's absolutely right. We do the same thing as integrity bodies for professional sports, but we do it on one tenth of the budget. Hmm. And so much of their money, by their accounting, is spent on investigations. It's a nonprofit. A lot of their money goes into the specifics of the work that they're doing. They actually, and this is so rare, I think, for reporting in esports, they gave me a dollar amount. They said $50,000. That was the cost of the first part of a report that they put out about a coaching bug in, Mm -hmm. I believe, October of 2020. And that's wild. That's $50,000 for a report put together by approximately four people, I believe, uh, that implicated like 37 coaches in the scene. Um, That's pretty costly. Mm -hmm. So I would say... A big part of the issue is that you know they don't have very much money and support. It's a fairly small team. Uh, as far as I can tell, there are two very visible public members. then there is a there are a handful of kind of behind the scenes folks, and they hire contractors to help out now and again to sort through data to put together reports. But it is a pretty small operation for the Intensity of the
0: task they've taken on. And I mean, where does I'm going to, I'm just going to continue saying ESIC, but where does ESIC yeah. get its funding? Is it through investors? Is it through the leagues and publishers itself? That's a great question.
1: They have a membership system where they have supporters and members that they work with that support their operations. I don't know the exact breakdown of, you know, how much it costs to become a member. Who is paying what amount? But eSic partners with betting websites, tournament organizers, stakeholders within the esports scene, and those stakeholders set aside some amount of money to fund eSic's work. That mm-hmm. is how the operation is funded.
0: And you know, I I guess with last year's investigation, which cost. $50,000. Um, I assume it was over a period of, I don't know, a certain amount of months. And while 50000 does sound like a lot, especially for one investigation, I mean, it does take, I assume, people who are uh, subject experts in that field, um, who generally do cost a lot of money if they were working in, I don't know, the private sector or as counsel for a company. So what's interesting to me about this whole story about
1: ESIC in general, is that Mm -hmm. the reason that I wrote my latest story is because I was starting to get tired of waiting on ESIC. I had actually, months ago, in late 2020, I reached out to these two guys, Michal Slavinsky and Steve Dudenhofer, who had worked on the coaching bug report that cost $50,000. And I had a conversation with them about how that investigation came to be, the work that went into that, and what they described was, again, I, I think the key word here is a pretty ragtag operation. Mihal, he is a, a referee in Counter-Strike, in professional matches, and he had heard a tip from somebody that there was some untoward behavior going on around a bug in which coaches, if they entered the match first, could place themselves around the map uh, surreptitiously and sort of see things that they weren't supposed to see from vantage points that they weren't supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And he started poring over demos. In Counter-Strike, there's this thing called a demo where you can essentially replay a match from any perspective, from any uh, player's point of view. You can see what they did at what time, just freely replay a match. And he started looking through those demos to try and see if he could pinpoint a coach's location and if they were in a place that they weren't supposed to be in. And he mm-hmm. started going through demo after demo after demo after demo. And there are hundreds of these. There is so much data. Uh, he had to work with software engineers to uh, design a special program that would allow him to extract data around where the coaches are which is not available by default uh there was a lot of kind of behind the scenes work and it took on the tone of essentially a a second full-time job for him and steve they would get off their normal day job and then they would spend the next you know seven eight nine hours of their night pouring over this data pouring over these demos downloading them there used to be limits to how many demos you could download in a night and so they had to negotiate with HLTV i believe to to download more demos hmm. there's a lot of weird behind the scenes stuff that goes into all of these investigations and they were pouring over demo after demo after demo and finally they realized yeah we're onto something we're finding coaches in in weird places where they're not supposed to be and they went to Isik. They partnered with Isik to get this done. And in the end, I believe only Michal was paid of the two. I don't think Steve was paid. Um, and he... This was kind of a sticking point in my conversation, but in my like fact-checking between Isik and then Mihal, They both told me different sums, the amount that that Michal was paid. Um, but... Even that sum I would not characterize as like a full, I don't think Michal like recouped the investment on the on the time mm. he spent working on this coaching bug report. So you really do need kind of die-hard, passionate people to do this kind of work. Um, because this is I, I think this goes back to the idea of Isik being underfunded. Um they're not really they're not making money off of this operation what they pay to people to help them out with certain investigations is not by my count like it doesn't really approach a, a livable wage or anything like that mm-hmm. so if you contrast what i think people think of as uh, like a typical salary in esports with the money that contractors the folks working with esic in some capacity Folks who help on investigations are are making or getting back for their efforts. They're not really comparable. They fall on the, the lower end of the
0: scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, ESAC, for all intents and purposes, is taking maybe too long to investigate and possibly is underpaying uh, its investigators. But you know, another question I did want to jump to is. How does cryptocurrency play into at least this most recent investigation, which, again, we haven't gotten the full report yet. We've just kind of gotten a teaser of it. Um, But how does cryptocurrency play a role in this? And why is the FBI and Interpol getting involved? Yeah, so this was a
1: fascinating part of this whole saga. In March, uh, Ian Smith, who's a commissioner at ESIC, he went on to a relatively small YouTube channel. Just did an interview with this channel called Slash32. And he dropped a bomb in the esports world. And he said, Isik is working with, you know, Scotland Yard, Interpol, the FBI, and all these law enforcement agencies in an effort to chase down these massive foreign betting syndicates mm. that are having an untoward influence on professional matches and Counter-Strike. And the example that was brought up was, you know, a player might be coerced to throw a game uh, and the person who would be coercing them, these betting syndicates, would put massive five, six-figure bets on unregulated Bitcoin betting websites in Russia, in China, uh, on these matches and make an absolute killing. Hmm. And... There's no proof of this, of course, but there's there are some suspicions that players were engaging in similar behavior where they would throw games and also place bets on the games they were playing um, in Bitcoin in a way that would be harder to track or maybe easier to make money off of. The problem for a lot of those players, I think, and the reason I think Isik is a good nonprofit to be chasing this investigation is that ESIC is partnered with a lot of betting websites. And so the foundation for a lot of the evidence that they're looking for, rather, is based in gambling data that they're getting from their partners at these betting websites. So to use a uh, a kind of twittery turn of phrase, I think some of the, the players implicated in this might be you know, caught in 4K. But then there is, of course, this broader issue that law enforcement is interested in regarding foreign betting syndicates, foreign betting websites, and these absurd sums, uh, these absurd bets being placed on... Bitcoin betting websites in Russia and China, where
0: the regulations might not be as strong. When it comes to the actual integrity of these investigations, I mean, based on your reporting, um, it seems that people are kind of losing faith in the scene because of lack of transparency. Uh, I mean, are there, I guess, beyond the financial impacts for like those betting? I mean, what are the real implications for the scene overall by having these slow to come out reports?
1: There are a couple of big issues. And initially, my hope was always to write, maybe not a celebratory article, but an article about, you know, here's how this investigation came together. Months ago, I reached out to Isik around the time that they announced that they were working with the FBI. uh, And I chatted with Stefan Hanna, who I spoke with also for this story. And I asked him, how are you doing this? How did this investigation come together? It's coming out fairly soon. What do you expect? Uh, And the tenor of the story was going to be, here's how they did it. And then for months, for I guess around four to five months, just radio silence from Isik. And the goodwill that they had built up, the respect that they had built up from the coaching bug report that they put out started to dwindle. And I think a lot of the frustrations around match fixing in counter-strike they start to bleed over into other games there are concerns that you know players who were in the mdl the mountain Dew league in counter-strike have jumped over to play in valorant Hmm. um this was a a detail that i cut from my story because it's it's one of those things that really needs to be taken with a, a grain of salt But the YouTube channel that Ian Smith went on to to announce that Isak was working with the FBI, with Interpol, and so on, that YouTube channel has videos that raise suspicions about players who are currently pros in Valorant. Some fairly prominent players, at least one of whom, by my count, is going to Berlin next month in September to play and represent North America in the Valorant Berlin Majors. So there are a lot of frustrations. There are a lot of concerns that, you know, there are people who are widely suspected, whose names are thrown around very casually as, you know, this person's a match fixer. We can't trust this person. Um, But there's no evidence. There's no hard backing to that. And so it just lives in this kind of middle space where you don't really know if you can trust or should support certain players. You don't really know if you should invest in their future, if you should care about them or if you know, 5 months down the line it's going to come out that you know, they actually engaged in really untoward behavior in the last game they participated in. Um there is the the fear that you know, if you spend a year away from Counter-Strike, and then you make your you remake yourself in Valorant, maybe you escape punishment completely. You threw a game, but now it's been a year, it's been a year and a half, it's been two years. Who cares? It's a different player now. It doesn't matter, they've changed. Uh there's a lot of fear of like escaping prosecution. Right. And then there's the kind of final issue that I I wanted to touch on at least very briefly in my story. And I got a quote to this end. There is the unfortunate fact that a player who threw a match might have impacted the career of a player who was not engaged in anything wrong. How so? You, You might have an instance where, you know, one or two players on a team conspired to throw a game and their other three teammates you know, they played their best. They had right. no idea what was going on. But the game is a loss on their record. They might not have advanced in a tournament. They might not have made a certain sum of money. They might not have, as a result, achieved you know a certain ranking on a tracking website that compares teams. And all of these things sort of factor into further career advancement. By winning, by making a name for yourself, you can go into content creation. You can get viewed by other teams, by scouts, by folks who are interested in you playing for more advanced teams. Um, And if you happened to be a totally like squeaky clean player who is really good, but you happen to be on a team where some of your teammates were throwing games, maybe your career never advanced. Maybe you never got the call-up to the major leagues that you wanted but through no fault of your own. And that mm. is, I think, a underappreciated risk or an underappreciated concern around all of this, which is just we won't know. We simply cannot know or calculate or quantify the... Reputational damage, the damage to people's careers and livelihoods that may have been done in the process. Hmm. Well, with that, Mikhail,
0: thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. And joining me now is freelance reporter Joseph Falomel Franco. With the ongoing investigation by California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing into Activision Blizzard's conduct with employees, Blizzard announced that it would be changing the name of one of the most popular Overwatch characters, Jesse McCree. The real Jesse McCree is a longtime Blizzard employee who had been let go from the company after the DFEH lawsuit came to light. While the reasons for McCree's departure were not detailed, the investigation by the DFEH involves multiple cases of workplace sexual harassment. In a statement, the Overwatch development team wrote, quote, As we continue to discuss how we best live up to our values and to demonstrate our commitment to creating a game world that reflects them, we believe it's necessary to change the name of the hero currently known as McCree into something that better represents what Overwatch stands for, end quote. Going forward, Overwatch characters will not be named after real employees. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, give us a sense within the Overwatch fandom, just how popular is McCree as a character and how are fans reacting to this change? Uh, in terms of popularity, McCree's
2: definitely one of the kind of premier um, or FPS style heroes in the game. Somebody that uh, maybe is a little more familiar with a Call of Duty or maybe even a Counter Strike mm-hmm. um, kind of gravitates towards this hero. So it's it definitely has a lot of you know the pick rate for the hero is very high the skill rate for the hero uh is quite demanding in some sense and in some sense not so much right um, he he does you know lovingly get dubbed a uh, right click which uh weirdly enough kind of follows into your next uh question um i think for the most part um most people i think most reasonable people are 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 pretty un unchanged, unmoved, unbothered by, by this change. Um, it is interesting, um, seeing how, you know, at the end of the day, it's a company and, you know, Blizzard Activision, Activision Blizzard, um, is, is kind of out for their own best interest. Um, there, there is a few, um, let's say a vocal minority of people kind of decrying that somehow, You know this is this is performative or that uh this is you know some sort of pr move it it doesn't feel like that even in the slightest and even if you think about it just for a little bit longer than maybe what it took to microwave your hot pockets um (laughs) you know it's when you think about the logistics of how much actually needs to go into this and how much that you know is already put in place you know look think about like the branding, the merchandise, the, the the maybe even deals outside of just the game itself that uh take such a popular hero's name into consideration. Um changing that on the on a whim of just you know what maybe some would you know think is, is a uh, a minuscule thing uh it, you start to see how big of a deal this is so it's it's actually not in their best interest to do this. Um, so it feels like they're actually trying to do the right thing as best as they can. Um, mm-hmm. And if, from my understanding, this is coming directly from the, uh, the the Overwatch team itself. This isn't some sort of like corp- corporate overlord, like you must change McCree's name. Um, it, I, I think for the most part, people are pretty like the, the average player is not bothered by this. And once they understand that this is coming, f- coming in place of uh, or, right. or because of uh some sort of issue that that oh they're 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 way more understanding than maybe you would you would kind of initially uh think so yeah i think for the most part people are like oh okay cool like yeah let's let's do good things
0: there's a i know there was like a story dlc regarding mccree that was supposed to come later this year if not next month i guess that is being delayed right
2: yes from my understanding that they wanted to roll out um a a free-for-all map which uh uh, i'll I'll save my opinions for the time (laughs) and place um but yeah there was supposed to be some sort of new story thing they wanted to do with uh the the cowboy hero as we're lovingly dubbing him now yeah Um, uh, and yeah it's it seems like they're taking this all in stride and and it really does feel like they're trying to do um their part in trying to create uh, a safer or a more you know inclusive environment let's say
0: and overwatch 2 has already been delayed uh and activision blizzard has said that i guess they're going to be scrubbing through all their titles and ensuring that mm. there isn't any real life names being used paid in homage or whatever do you feel that this name change could possibly delay overwatch 2 further
2: that i i will say it's definitely not going to make it come out faster sure um i can't imagine that that's going to be a gigantic reason we've heard some speculation and we've heard some uh some rumors on why perhaps overwatch 2 isn't uh coming along as quickly as we might have hoped um what what
0: are what are one of those main rumors
2: so there's been some talk um, that, you know, because of the rebalancing of the game to 5v5 that um, the the game itself needs a little bit more love in terms mm-hmm. of game balance. So they have to go and almost redesign a lot of these heroes. And I think they kind of came into Overwatch 2 thinking that um, certain heroes need to be redesigned. Um, but it sounds like more of them uh need a little bit more tuning in love than uh previously had thought. Yeah. That's interesting to me, um, because I- I'm a little bit more competitively minded, but um we'll we'll see when it comes to that. Regarding a, a name change and maybe even like a complete overhaul of the uh the look of the character, I wouldn't imagine just the name would be changed if I'm gonna be completely honest. I think that um the cowboy formerly known as uh jesse mccree is probably no more and perhaps will undergo a significant story element to change and maybe alter his uh physical appearance and Hmm. uh, adopt a new name let's say right like completely shedding the the old you know visage of this cowboy western you know cybernetic right arm kind of rough and tumble guy but um yeah it's I don't think that Overwatch 2 is going to get delayed all that much by by this. I don't think it helps, but yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the .esports podcast network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share. For full transcripts of the show, head on over to ftwamad.com. To follow Mikhail and the work he's doing at Launcher, you can find him at LeaderGrev on Twitter. To follow Joseph and keep up to date on all the articles he's writing, follow him at Volamel on Twitter. To find me and my work over at Tom's Guide, you can find me at imad on Twitter. This episode was produced by de Moore and Jacob Wolfe. Executive producer is Kevin Morris. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.